this morning. We uh, First off, if you're visiting, and, and maybe this is your first time or second time, special welcome to you. Very glad you're here. We are um, in our second study of a new series. We just started this last week, and it's a study in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again because this may in some ways connect with your experience. When I when I have started other studies, we like to go through books of the Bible when we can. When I've started other series and, and someone has asked me, what are you preaching on? What are you teaching in your church? And I've said, ah, you know, the Gospel of John or uh, we're going to do um, Exodus. People might say, okay, yeah, great, sounds good. But when I've told them Revelation, they've kind of gone, whoa. Whoa, uh-oh. And there's something about this book. It, it is deliberate that it's the last book of the Bible. You don't need to read it unless you've read the other 65 in some ways. And uh, even as we study, we're going to be dipping back into it. But that we're, we're still sort of in introduction mode. I'm doing more introduction with this book than I'll probably ever do in any other study just because of the nature of Revelation. So this morning, we're in uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the text I'm going to preach from is in the bulletin. You can just follow it there. Revelation 1.9. As you're looking at that question before we get started, if you knew that your mom was going to outlive you, and if your mom did not have means to take care of herself, to whom would you entrust her? If you knew that you were going to die before your mom, and she did not have means to take care of herself, to whom would you entrust her? And I think we could safely say that whatever answer you would give to that question, uh, if you're able to come up with one, is somebody that you are very, very, very fond of and feel very good about. If you read in the Gospel of John, and this is the same John that writes Revelation, if you read in the, the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, as Jesus is on the cross, he looks down and he sees Mary and John. And he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And it's hard to know exactly to whom he's referring. Is that to him or to John? But then to John, he says, Behold your mother. You'll be taking care of Mary now. Now that should tell you something about the relationship between Jesus and John. They were incredibly close. That's going to come up more and more in this series. They were very, very, very Dear friends, now if, if something of that doesn't get in our bones, this text will not land the way I'm hoping it's going to land inside of us. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for your word, we thank you. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that we have it in our language. Thank you that we can get in a big room and gather around it in safety. Lord, we don't want to be uh, crummy stewards of such great privileges. And so help us. Help us in this time for it to be what you want it to be. Uh, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that heed. And we need your help. And so we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if, you're, if you are a Facebook user, and most of you are, you have seen, and I asked someone how to pronounce this. I've seen the word, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, memes, or mems, uh, M-E-M-E. And a, let's just say meme. Can we all say meme? Uh, a meme... Is a, it's kind of like a stock photo with a caption on it. Usually there's words above the picture, the picture, and then words underneath it. And uh, I just, it seems like in the last couple of years, I just see a lot more of these on Facebook, and there's little websites where you can make, you can make your own. And uh, one I've seen, it has a, a stormtrooper from Star Wars, and he's sitting at a, a table or a counter or a bar, and he's got his elbows on the counter, he's got his helmet in his hands, and the caption reads, Those were the droids I was looking for. Uh, there's a lot of Mr. T memes, um, you know, I pity the fool that, whatever you're interested in, or wh- whoever's not interested in what you're interested in. A few months ago, I saw one that, that kind of jumped out from the, from the pack, and the picture, I'd seen this picture before, and I'm guessing just from the style of it that it was uh, maybe a print from an old illustrated Bible, like a late 1800s illustrated Bible. And it was a picture of what you immediately know as the Roman Colosseum, and it's from the the ground. And stepping up onto the floor of the Colosseum is a big, muscular, full-grown lion. And behind him is another lion coming up these steps onto the floor. And the lion is looking over to the right, and you see huddled this little group of people that you instinctively know are Christians. And the caption is... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, some of you recognize those words. Those words are from an incredibly widespread evangelism tool called the Four Spiritual Laws. It's kind of 
Let's get the gospel down to bullet points where we can communicate those. The very first one is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, the reason I bring this up is not to assess that. God has used that tool all over the world, okay? So we can affirm that big time. But what I'm bringing up is that when we hear a wonderful life, we have our mental picture of what that's going to look like. And the people that are given the book of Revelation first, you know, if, if you look in verse 11, you know all these churches, the, the, the location of these local churches, if you plot those on a map, it makes a loop. It, it makes the exact route you would take if you wanted to most effectively hit these seven spots and visit them and give them information. This book was to be taken to all seven of those local churches, and this was to be shared. Why was this to be shared? Because here's the deal. Some of them are facing that wonderful life. I mean, this is a world under Roman rule. And persecution and tribulation are not metaphors. Uh, you know, scholars who are a lot smarter than me about the New Testament, way smarter than me, have a tough time dating exactly when Revelation was written. But this we know. It was written in the first century in a Roman world. And so you have things like Nero whether he was emperor when this was written or not. Nero, who, this is just one example so that we don't have to get too gory, would take Christians and would impale them, which is horrible. Horrible. Would impale Christians and would cover them or have it done for him, tar or pitch and light them and set them up as lamps in his garden at night. What if that's your wonderful life? If an almighty God is saying, I did come to give you life and life abundant, but do you have a mental picture of what that's going to look like? Because it may look like this. And what resources do you give to people in that kind of context to keep them going? And Revelation is one of those resources. So here, here's how I want to unpack this. We're still in introduction mode. In some ways, I want to use some, um, some kind of big pegs to hang our hat on, almost like your English teacher would use about a story. So number one context, number two, author, number three, hero. All right, context, author, hero. What's the context of the book of Revelation? Very important for the rest of this study. Look in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in what? In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, let's think about those. First off, tribulation. That word is some of what sort of spooks people about Revelation, that there's this thing, this really intense bad time that's prophesied when just everything falls apart, and that's the tribulation. And here's what we have to keep clear. There is, in the book of Revelation a great tribulation that's referenced. Lord willing, we're going to get to that later. Jesus spoke about the same thing. There was a great tribulation to come. But then there is the normal tribulation that Christians live in. And John's not writing saying, I'm writing to get you ready for that. He's saying, I am presently in it as you are presently in it. We're in this tribulation. And what must have been ringing in his ears is something he heard Jesus say. In fact, this is in the Gospel of John, John 16, 33. Jesus said, you will have tribulation in this world. 
you will have it. It's the norm. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, that verse, you can completely connect the dots to Revelation. John's saying, you're in it. You, know, you, you might get beheaded. You might not. You might have your personal property confiscated. You might not. But we're in the tribulation. And the kingdom... Now think about it. When we sing the hallelujah chorus, hallelujah, hallelujah, and uh, you know that part that where, I don't know if you'd call it a bridge, our, our music scholars would know, but it's where the, the music, the, 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 the pace of the music changes, and then it says, the kingdom of this world, this is King James, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now where is that text from? Revelation. That here's the reality that Christians are living in. Jesus does not aspire to become king. He's not working to become king. He is already fully, completely king of kings and Lord of lords. But that is not yet fully manifested in the world. And you have heard me use that phrase and you're going to hear me use it more. Already and not yet. He is already king of the world and that's not yet fully known And as the already starts to push into an unreached world, friction. And guess who's in that smashing area? People that follow Jesus. The tribulation and and there was a literal kingdom it was going into, the Roman kingdom, with a real emperor. And patient endurance. That's just one Greek word, just endurance. And that is a major theme in Revelation. You've got to keep going. You've got to push through. I mean, we would tend to think, hey, if my brother and I both became followers of Jesus and then my brother was taken into custody and he was decapitated for following Jesus and now I'm having second thoughts, we might think Revelation comes along and says, well, that's understandable. I can see how you'd have second thoughts. And it doesn't. It says, no, that might happen to you. You have to know that on the front end if you don't know it already. But you must overcome. That's your calling in following Jesus. Now, it's easy at this point to go, well, okay, but but listen. Greenville is not a Roman-dominated world in the first century. Granted. I'll grant you that. But what's easy then to do is to say, that's a different kind of Christian life that just, you know, in God's economy, I live now, I live in this place. I don't have to go through that. Be careful. One of the most famous parables that Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus ever preached is the parable of the sower and the seeds. It's recorded in several of the Gospels. And there's a guy that takes this seed and he goes out and he scatters it on the ground the way farmers used to, and it lands on different kinds of soil, and the way the, 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 the seed responds to that soil is telling you how people respond to the gospel when it's just sown far and wide. There's four types that he gives, and he says there's one whole type, and here's what it is. It's when a seed hits the ground, and it springs up, and you know, the farmer or the evangelist, the missionary just goes, yes! And then Jesus Jesus says, but then tribulation comes. 
and persecution comes. You know, at first there was joy and there was excitement and, and sign me up for Bible study and I'm loving this and I'm learning things I never have. And then there's pushback and there's cost. And Jesus says there's a whole type of soil where on the front end you're encouraged and then the wheels come off, to mix metaphors. See, that can be us. Where, I heard, you know, I... I, I I was excited about learning more about the Bible. I was excited maybe about sort of trying on these Christian clothes. Like the reason maybe I came to downtown Prez was to try this on for size. And everything was great for the first year. And now I looked up and my family hates me. I used to love Thanksgiving and now I hate it. Everything was fine with my coworkers. And it's not like I, I got in the office on a PA system and said, as we now pray... You know, it's not like I was going out handing out evangelism tracts. Well, now I have a microphone still. It's not like I was giving out evangelism tracts in different cubicles. I, I haven't done anything like that. I'm just trying to, like, learn what I learn and follow Christ and be faithful at work. And all of a sudden, there's pushback. And some people say, no more. Okay, that's the context. The author is John. Just so we're on the same page, this is not John the Baptist. He died during the time that the Gospels record. This is John, one of the twelve apostles. Not just one of the twelve apostles, not that that's a little deal, but um, part of that inner ring, that inner circle of Peter, James, and John. He's the one who describes himself in the Gospels as the beloved disciple. He loved his Jesus. Jesus loved his John. Very close. And in the Gospels, he calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. In his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he calls himself the elder. But how does he self-identify in Revelation? He says, he does not mention that he's an apostle, although he is. doesn't mention that he's Jesus' close, close friend, although he is. He says... I'm your brother and partner in all this same stuff. That if your congregation is experiencing the pain of the Christian life, you may think that the apostles get to dodge that bullet. We're in the thick of it. Some people think John was the only apostle who was not martyred. But he's on this island called Patmos, which is where Rome sent its troublemakers. Did he have friends there? We don't know, but there he is. I'm going through the same thing. And I'm doing it on account of being faithful. It's not like, hey, I was this apostle who followed Jesus, loved him, wrote about him, made him known, and then I did some crazy stuff and I got in trouble. But it's on account of the Word of God. It's on account of telling all kinds of people, here's who I saw, I saw him, and I'm telling you, He's the Son of God. On account of that, I'm on this island. Now, that is challenging right there because, again, not because anyone said this to us necessarily, but there's something in us that can think, if I know God loves me, and I do, and if I love Him, and I do, and if I seek to live biblically, and I'm trying, 
then I'm going to have a good life. And by good life, we might mean the same thing as the, the wonderful life for you. You can, do all, you can have the love of God and love Him back and be, never perfectly, but purposefully faithful in following Him. And you can end up sad, or at least in a sad situation, and away from your friends, and away from your congregation, and away from your stuff. I read recently about a lady named Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere was a missionary in the Congo, uh, I believe late 50s and into the 60s. And I'm going to say this as diplomatically from up front as I can. In an area where she was working, being faithful, you know, said no to all these comforts in America and goes to the Congo, which if it's the same area that's now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that nation is normally listed as the poorest country in the world. The trying to make Jesus known, and um, a rebel army came in where she was working, and she was assaulted, and how do I say it? She was violated. And she said, to her shock, because if there was any fear deep, deep down in a single woman on the mission field, besides just death itself, it would be that. And that what washed over her immediately on the heels of that was Philippians 4.19, that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches, which are in Christ Jesus. Don't you worry about a thing. And as people who knew her will tell you that for the rest of her life, talked about how we should go on missions, did not demonize her attackers, forgave them, commended missions to a whole generation of young people. All right. Where does that come from? And, and the tendency is to say, well, you know, there's just some people that are like that. I think if Helen Rosevere could stand up here, she would say, do you think I was born that way? Like I have different genetics or something? And I just showed up where I can be brutalized and it's great. No one's like that naturally. So where does it come from? Okay, let me ask the question differently. Where does any endurance come from? And we might want to say willpower. You know, the ability to dig deep. Everyone can reach the end of their willpower. It comes from love. Endurance comes from not only the object of your love, but the loving of that object. I mean, think about some of you know, we could say some of you are, people who in high school had to be just dislodged with a crowbar to get out of bed. I mean, there were just fights every morning. You won't get up. How how can we ever trust you to be a grown-up out there? just could not get up, loved sleep, loved it with a, yea, verily, with a deep love. <laughs> and then there was college. And then in college, this was just unfettered now. And so classes were skipped. Maybe there were Fs, you know, because, I mean, sleep just went to a whole new level. And now some of those same 
people became men and women who would get up three, four times in the dead of night when they're exhausted for a baby. Now, not just anybody's baby, their baby, because they love their baby. And, I mean, after a while, they may look like they have been in combat, and they keep going. And some of you are in this, and it's funny until you're in it. Then it's not funny. So everyone who's laughing is not doing this right now. It comes from... Okay, so... Here's where the hero comes in. Here's where the hero comes in. This is where I, I wish I could make time work differently and have you for an hour in 10 minutes. Let's read the description of what Jesus' close friend saw. What did he see? Let's start in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, let me stop right there. When you think about roar, this is roar. Something I, I wish I had done more, I've done it a few times, is when Greenville has experienced maybe two days of really hard rain, is take the street that goes down from the governor's school and really, from a street, it's the most unobstructed view of the Reedy River Falls when the upstate has just been saturated and it roars. You, you don't just hear it, you feel it. That's the voice that he's hearing. Now, this is where I have to look at my notes here because I said last week, if you're going to study Revelation, if you're going to understand it, you have to interact with the Old Testament. And some of the books that keep coming up are Exodus, the prophecy of Daniel, the prophecy of Ezekiel. Let me mention two of those, okay? I'm going to try to be brief, but I can't go too fast here. In the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel sees a vision of God in chapter 7. And here's what it says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's a title for God. Older than the mountains older than the planets and the stars. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And just a little bit later, in that same chapter of Daniel, someone appears before, this, before the Ancient of Days and he's described as being like a son of man. John hears a voice. He turns to see who this voice is, and he sees a person, and his face is like the sun. And if you grew up in Judea, you would know what a bright sun looks like, and his face is like that. And his eyes are burning with fire. Now think about the book of Exodus. Very familiar territory with early believers. When God comes to Moses to call him to lead the people out of Egypt, how does he appear? He appears in a bush as what? Fire. And then when the pillar leads the people and even comes between the Israelites and the Egyptian army, it is a pillar of what? A pillar of fire. He leads them through the Red Sea and they go to Mount Sinai. And what comes down on Mount Sinai? The divine fire. 
And they build the tabernacle. And when they do it just the way God says and He inhabits it, He shows up as what? By day, cloud. And by night, fire. A face like unmitigated noonday sun, eyes of the divine fire. The face from the prophecy of Daniel. The face is the face of the Ancient of Days, but the person is like the person who appeared before the Ancient of Days. Okay, do you love him yet? Do you love just raw, unmitigated power? Think about this. We haven't had a good Navy SEAL illustration in a while, so cue it up. I've mentioned this book before, Lone Survivor, a guy named Marcus Luttrell. He was in SEAL Team 10. He was the only survivor of of a mission in Afghanistan. And um, long story short, he was captured, only guy in his unit that, that, uh, that made it out. And when he's rescued, he's lost almost 40 pounds, who knows how many pints of blood. He's broken three vertebra, uh, broken his wrist. He, he just, his nose is out of place because he's been beat up and his nose hasn't been reset. He's, he, he is in awful shape. And so he's, he's taken to safety and he's taken to a medical facility. And here's what happened. Um, the morphine was not as good as the opium, opium I'd been given. Everything hurt. I was met formally by the SEAL skipper, Commander Kent Pirro, who was accompanied by my doctor. He came with me in the van, Commander Pirro, a very high-ranking SEAL officer who had always remembered my first name ever since the, the day we first met. He sat beside me, gripping my arm, asking me how I was. I recall telling him, yes, sir, I'm fine. But then I heard him say, Marcus... And he shook his head, and I noticed this immensely tough character, my boss's boss, had tears streaming down his face, tears of relief. I think that I was alive. It's funny, but it was the first time in so long that I was with someone who really cared about me. And I found it overwhelming, and I broke down right there in the van, and when I pulled myself together... Commander Pirro was asking me if there was anything I needed because no matter what it was, he would get it. Now, when I read that, I thought, I don't know Commander Pirro, but he's the man. And I like him a lot. Because, you know, Marcus Luttrell had just demonstrated he is extremely tough. There are no non-tough Navy SEALs. To be the boss, to be a commanding officer of SEALs is an incredible accomplishment. But to be a high-ranking boss of bosses, he says he is an incredibly fierce character. But what makes him lovable is when he reaches out and feels for him, was concerned about him, and says, look, anything you need, I will personally get it. And I would think if you're a high-ranking SEAL officer, I would think in the Navy you can walk through walls. Face of the Ancient of Days, face like the sun, and this hand that was holding seven stars reaches out and touches him and says, Fear not. 
And I want you to, I want you to picture how dramatic this is. To fall down as though dead is not like, let me kneel before this, this divine figure. I mean, he's talking about like, just dead. And this human star touches him and says, don't fear. Now, these early Christians, when they read that, may have remembered not only the the Ancient of Days reference in Daniel 7, but in chapter 10 of Daniel, there's someone that the Ancient of Days sends, and he's dressed in a robe and a golden belt, and his feet are like burnished bronze. And when this messenger comes to Daniel, it terrifies Daniel, and the messenger puts his hand on him and says, God loves you, don't be afraid. These early... If these early readers knew Daniel, they're thinking, wait a second. The person you saw is equal to the Ancient of Days, but he's someone that the Ancient of Days sends. And I'm sure John would have said, bingo. And he's wearing a robe. Did you notice that? So what? Doesn't everybody in the Bible wear a robe? Everybody has, everybody has robes in the Bible and beards and jars. He's wearing the uniform of a priest. What's the sacrifice? He told us just a few verses before. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, you may be here this morning and you're not a Christian. And here's one thing I'd like to drive home to you. Is <laughs> it's interesting the way John said this. He said, I heard this voice like a trumpet. By the way, that's what they heard at Mount Sinai when God showed up. Exodus reference. He said, I hear this voice like this loud trumpet, this loud voice, and I wheel around to see who it is. And so you're, you're thinking that he's going to start with a description, but what's the first description of what he saw? Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And he finds out that those mean what? Those are churches. Then he says there's one standing in the midst of them. This is incredible. Uh, If you're here and and either you know you're not a Christian or you're in process and you don't know what you are, here's what I want you to notice about this, is that where you find Jesus is in the midst of the churches. And if, if you're thinking through these things and trying them on for size, I would say, yes, re- read the Bible, please. Maybe start with the gospel. Maybe the gospel of John. But read a gospel. Read for yourself. Try it on. Talk to other Christians. But if you want to really meet him and come to grips with who he is, I would exhort you, keep doing something like this. I don't want to be self-serving and say, you've got to come to downtown Prez like he only is in the midst of us. He's not only in the midst of us. We're one lampstand, but we're a lampstand. I mean, it's all, I'm not trying to be weird, but this is Revelation. <laughs> all bets are off. It's, it's like it's saying that he's not just doing that with all the churches around the world, but like he's right there. Just right there, just right there in the middle of us. And Christians need to hear that too. 
because we keep sliding into thinking that other things are more beneficial, whether that's vacation or sleep or just to catch my breath or time, whatever. And those can be valuable, but he stands in the midst of local churches. And let me say this, wherever you are spiritually, non-committed Christian, in-between, whatever, um, there's a sociologist, I think he's at Notre Dame now, I'm not sure, but his name is Christian Smith, and he's, he's done some extensive research about what are young adults thinking spiritually? And talked to just thousands and thousands of people, interviewed them, and he said, if you want to know what the spiritual viewpoint of most rising young adults and young adults is, and he said this as a scientist, not just, he, he's trying to be diagnostic, he said, the viewpoint across religious traditions, across geographies, is what he called moralistic, therapeutic deism. That at the end of the day, most rising adults think that the goal of life is to be a good person. And to be a good person is to be someone who is nice and who is capable and who is educated and who volunteers with nonprofits and is a good person. And that if God exists then maybe he's kind of part of an, of an overall team of parents and coaches and mentors and counselors and others. He's part of that team that helps me be the empowered person that I want to be. And here's what's beautiful. Revelation 1 is coming and saying, he is so much better than that. He is so much more powerful than the deist's God who just kind of winds the universe up after he makes it, puts it up on the mantle. He has everything in His hand. He'll put His hand on you. He's the Ancient of Days. But He loves more than any therapist. And I could say, that's not anti-therapist. He loves more than any pastor. And He is calling us to something better than just being a nice person. You can be a nice person across spiritual viewpoints, but He is calling us to participate in building His kingdom. And know this, with that will come tribulation. And you know what? When you really begin to eat His flesh and drink His blood and see what He's like, here's what can wash over you. If the worst case scenario is torture and martyrdom, it's totally worth it. And your application of that might be to hang in there with the person in the cubicle next to you that hates you. Or to hang in there with the family member who hates you. But what it might be is that there's someone sitting in the sanctuary right now who really is supposed to go to the ends of the earth. Or maybe not the ends of the earth. Maybe they're supposed to go somewhere in Greenville or in the United States to head up a mercy ministry in the name of Jesus. But this whole thing of, well, you know, we need to do something that's reasonable and safe. You've got to ditch that. and say, he'll handle that. Because you know what? The worst case scenario is you die. And right when you die, there he is saying, I died and I live forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I control all those things. And I love you. You don't worry. Whatever you need, I'll get it. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, it is hard for us to believe these things. It's hard for us to believe, but right now we hang on to the fact that you give belief. It's hard for us to repent of things that we need to let go of and turn from, but you give turning. You give repenting. So to a room full of people, some who know you, some who don't yet know you, would you grant us belief? Grant us turning to you. Show us how you are the desire of our hearts, fulfillment of everything we wanted. We wanted God and we, got, and we wanted man and we got you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd please...